0: welcome to the north church women's bible study podcast my name is pam larson and i am delighted that you are listening or watching let's pray as we begin jesus you died in my place for me you died for me you took my sin you paid the penalty so that i might know pardon and salvation You reconciled me, made me your child, and now I can draw near to you with confidence. This is amazing love. How can it be? Lord, would you help us now to see more of you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this week in our study on Jesus, Portraits of Our Precious Savior, We are on lesson seven, My Chosen One, Atoning Sacrifice. I will be walking through the sections on God's Chosen One, the Suffering Servant, and Atoning Sacrifice. The section in our workbook on Atoning Sacrifice was rather short, and so I will be unpacking a lot more for you on this recording. Last week, we learned that God instructed the people. To choose a perfect lamb from their flock, to take this chosen one into their house and watch it for three days prior to the Passover. The blood of this lamb would cover their door and provide salvation for all in the house. And then we trace the theme of the lamb throughout the scriptures. This week, we will continue the theme of salvation through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, the Chosen One, our Suffering Servant. This title of Jesus has been popularized by the TV series, The Chosen. The description at Netflix.com uses the language of sacrifice and substitution. Quote, This fresh take on the Gospels follows Jesus as He gathers His disciples Heals the needy and sacrifices himself for the sake of humanity. Well, Isaiah the prophet foretold a suffering servant who would bring justice. He was writing about Jesus, he also called him my chosen one. So, we're going to talk a little bit about the insights that we can gain from comparing Isaiah with some of the gospel accounts. And the first one that we're going to look at is from Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 9. And we can see where this was quoted by Matthew in Matthew chapter 12 verses 17 through 21. And just some of the highlights here, you can see this uh, term that Isaiah uses, behold my servant. So we're going to talk a lot about this idea of the suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. We saw this in Matthew 12, where at Jesus' baptism, she, the God the Father says, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. We also have the same language here that we, we hear that God has put his spirit Upon him, and that he will bring forth justice to the nations. And then we read a couple of things that he's not going to do. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. And a rused breed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people that's jesus he does bring us he is a covenant and he brings us the new covenant that he inaugurates in his blood isaiah also speaks about him as a light for the nations and we saw this a couple of weeks ago when we learned that jesus is the light of the world and he also opens the eyes that are blind demonstrating that he is that true light of the world. And then Isaiah goes on to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things now I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Now let's look at isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5. this is a beautiful passage that we looked at a couple weeks ago surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by god and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace and then we see this beautiful phrase with his wounds we are healed we see this throughout the gospels where jesus has this incredible healing ministry and it fulfills what isaiah prophesied let's next look at isaiah 53 verses 9 and 12. they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. We see this fulfilled in Matthew 27, starting in verse 57, where we read about a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate. He asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate gives it to him, so Joseph took Jesus' body wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And then he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. And then Isaiah also says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he... For the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And we see this fulfilled in Luke chapter 22, where Luke specifically writes, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled. And then finally, let's look at Isaiah 61, where Isaiah writes, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, we read a couple of weeks ago, we looked at this section and we realized that Jesus, when he is reading this from the scroll of Isaiah in the temple, he stops right here, doesn't he? He did not read the next verses in Isaiah. Jesus fulfilled these things in his ministry. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. The Lord had anointed him to bring good news to the poor and bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus is indeed the Chosen One of God. He's affirmed by God the Father at the Mount of Transfiguration, where we read in Luke 9, a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. So that's our challenge too, isn't it? Jesus is God's Chosen One, and we need to listen to Him. We also hear this phrase, when Jesus is at the cross, and this is hurled as a taunt from his enemies. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And then there's another connection to Isaiah 53 that we see in Acts chapter 8, where we read a story about Philip, the evangelist, who has a spirit-directed encounter with an Ethiopian official who is very confused as he's reading Isaiah. And so we read that Philip ran to him and heard him reading, what? He was reading Isaiah, the prophet. And he says, do you understand what you're reading? And his response is, well, he says, how can I unless someone guides me? Oh, sisters, pray for opportunities to guide someone, to help someone else understand what they're reading in the Bible. Take opportunities to share what you're learning in this Bible study. And then it goes on. Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. What was it? Actually, is from Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 7 and 8. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb, we saw this last week, before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. What does he do? He guides him, right? Beginning with this scripture, he told him, the good news about jesus oh i pray you'll have an opportunity to do that with someone very soon okay now we're going to go on to the next section which is we're going to look at jesus as the suffering servant so we're going to ask the question how did jesus serve and suffer so we're going to read Philipp- philippians Two verses 1 through 11, with an eye for what Jesus has done for us and how we relate to him. So let's read this together. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We should have this mind, the mind of Christ who though he was in the form of god did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped but what did he do he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men being found in human form he did what he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, Jesus, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, it is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has done so much for us. And I just pray that as you read passages like this and you do this Bible study, that you will stop, that you will reflect on this, and you will just praise Jesus for all he has done. Now, in your lesson, I also took you to Luke chapter 12, I believe it is, 1237, because it might surprise you that when Jesus returns, He will still be serving us. And not only was he the servant of his people while he lived on earth, but he will also be our servant when he comes again. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. That's Jesus. He's our master. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and He will come and serve them. Jesus is our servant. He is our suffering servant. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 tells us, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. He is our helper servant in so many ways, but he is not a genie in a bottle who hops to our demands. He is not a servant in the sense that we are his master. No, God forbid. But we honor him when we come to him in weakness and we plead for help, when we come desperate for his love and mercy, and he serves and he gives and He supplies out of the riches of His grace. The more He pours out of His inexhaustible resources, the larger our reservoir of past grace grows, and the more confidently we trust Him for all that we need for tomorrow. The more He helps and serves, the more we receive, and then we give Him glory when we praise Him for His help. It's like the old hymn puts it, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. That is what he does for us. He loves to work for those who wait for him. He takes pleasure in those who hope in his steadfast love and his eyes run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him his strength supplies us and it's for his glory 1 peter 4:11 says whoever serves that's us as one who serves by the strength that god supplies why in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That is the goal, the glory of God and the glory of Jesus Christ. Now let's focus on the suffering part of that title, suffering servant. No one expected a suffering Messiah, even though repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, we see a pattern of rejection and suffering. Followed by exaltation, Jesus said to those on the road to Emmaus, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And we've read a lot of those prophecies already in this lesson, haven't we? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Apparently, Jesus hoped that his followers might have connected the dots, the prophecies, the promises, those patterns of rejection and suffering in men like Joseph and Moses and David and the prophets. And then when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, he pointed back to the bronze serpent. And he said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then in John 12, Just on the heels of raising Lazarus and riding into Jerusalem to the shouts of Hosanna, which means save us, Lord, Jesus proclaimed this. He said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me he must follow me and where I am there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled and what shall I say Father save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. You see the connection here. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, "An angel has spoken to him." And then Jesus answered, "This voice, has come for your sake not mine now is the judgment of this world now will the ruler of this world be cast out and i when i am lifted up we see that again just like in john 3 about the bronze serpent when i am lifted up from the earth i will draw all people to myself and why did he say this he said this to show by what kind of death, he was going to die. He would be lifted up on the cross. And then, just to be sure that his audience didn't miss the connections to Isaiah, he went on in verses 37 through 41. When Jesus said these things, he departed and he hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him why here's purpose so that the words spoken by the prophet isaiah might be fulfilled lord who has believed what he heard from us and to whom is the arm of the lord been revealed therefore they could not believe for again isaiah said he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and i would heal them isaiah said these things because see that phrase again why isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him isaiah saw jesus he points to jesus Now, James Hamilton, a scholar, wrote in his book, Typology, Understanding the Bible's Promised Shape Patterns. He said, in his mysterious providence, God sovereignly worked in history so that his people chose to reject those whom God raised up to accomplish their deliverance. Through that rejection, through Joseph being sold as a slave into Egypt, through Moses spending 40 years in the wilderness, through David learning to trust the Lord through persecution, through the culminating crucifixion of the Messiah, God worked deliverance for his people. Jesus, our suffering servant, came not to be served, but to serve. But that's not the rest of the verse. He came and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came as an atoning sacrifice. R.C. Sproul wrote, I suspect that when my eyes open in heaven for the first time, which for him actually happened just over five years ago, he said, I will be absolutely staggered by the sudden increase Of understanding that will come to me when I behold the Lamb who was slain and hear angels and archangels singing in my ears. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And when I see the Apostle Paul and say, Thank you for knowing nothing but Christ and Him crucified. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So how do we know Jesus and Him crucified? Well, the Bible speaks of it in many ways. In 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul said, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the gentiles we also see jesus death on the cross spoken of as substitution that is a vicarious death the satisfaction of god's justice and wrath we also see him refer the this idea of the crucifixion referred to as redemption our, jesus is our kinsman redeemer who purchased his bride with blood freeing us from our bondage Jesus is also our ransom that was paid. And he won victory over the serpent. He crushed the head of the snake. We read this in Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And it's also spoken of as atonement. The idea of God bringing us into a condition of being at one with him. But there is yet another image that Isaiah points to that might cause us to be a bit uncomfortable and maybe this will surprise you but isaiah 53:6 says this and the lord the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all and then in verses 10 through 11 yet it was the will of the lord to crush him the lord this is this is the lord the lord has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt he shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days it was the will of the lord that was will make his hand prosper shall prosper in his hand out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one my servant we see that again my servant make many to be accounted righteous that is what happens for us at the cross that we are counted righteous when jesus bears our iniquities and this was the will of god somehow it was god's will to crush jesus to bruise his son even as jesus crushed the head of the serpent romans 8:32 says he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is truly amazing. I want to read for you a quote from a book called The Heart of the Cross, and this is a quote from Philip Graham Riken. He said, yet because it was an essential part of his plan." God the Father did not spare God the Son from the cross. According to God's eternal plan, the cross of Christ was inevitable. Christians, therefore, have always believed and taught the necessity of the cross. Not long after Jesus returned to heaven, his friend Peter preached to the people of Jerusalem. He said, This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Acts 2.23 God knew about the crucifixion of his son even before it happened. He not only knew about it, he permitted it. He not only permitted it, he purposed it. The cross was essential to his plan for humanity. Going on, again, this is Phil Reichen. This is worth remembering whenever it seems like God doesn't know what he's doing. The trials and tragedies of life are often puzzling. Does God know what is happening in my life? Does he care? Can he do anything about it? The answer is that God does know and he does care. And if you trust him, he will do something about it. The cross of Christ proves that God's plans are good. The crucifixion of Jesus was the most evil deed ever committed on this planet. God's own perfect Son was put to death by wicked men. What could be more evil than that? At the same time, however, the crucifixion of Jesus was the best thing that ever happened on this planet. As we shall see, the cross has brought salvation to the world. If God brought the greatest good out of the greatest evil, He can bring good out of what seems to be evil in your own life. It is all part of God's plan. Maybe you've heard of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It's perhaps the holiest day in the Jewish year. And I'd like to read for you a story now. This is from Kevin DeYoung's book, The Biggest Story, Bible Storybook. And this is chapter 17, A Tale of Two Goats. And I'd like you to indulge me in reading this because I think we can learn a lot from just the the way that the insights are given to us here in this particular story. Chapter 17, A Tale of Two Goats. The Israelites were almost ruined by a cow, but once a year they were rescued by two goats. The day was called the Day of Atonement, and it was one of the most important holidays in Israel, kind of like Christmas except with fewer cookies and more goats. On one day, and on only one day, each year, the holiest person in Israel would put on his holy clothes and go into the holy place of the holy tent to stand before the holy God to make atonement for God's unholy people. Sounds confusing, doesn't it? But the holiday was actually pretty simple. Atonement is how separated people can become at one. God is holy and good and perfect, and God loves us very much. But if we're honest, we have to admit that we are not very holy or good or perfect. We are sinners, and sin needs a substitute. If we want to live with God, and God certainly wants to live with us, we need someone or something to pay for our sins. That's where the goats come in. Israel had lots of sacrifices for sin, but once a year, the high priest took two goats and confessed all the people's sins over these goats. It was like taking all the mistakes and all the fighting and all the lying and all the yelling and all the meanness from the past year and putting those sins on a substitute. And do you know what happened to the goats? The first goat died that the sins of the people might be forgiven. The second goat lived and was led into the wilderness that the sins of the people might be forgotten. We might feel bad for the two goats, especially the first one, but then we should feel even worse for our sin and even better for our salvation. Forgive and forget. That's what God does with our sins. He removes our sins as far as the east is from the west, out of the holy place, out of the tent, outside the camp, and into the wilderness, never to be seen again. But of course, we can't really be rescued by goats. The goats were there to remind God's people of the redemption they needed and the rescuer who was yet to come. Many years later, Jesus would be taken outside the camp too, to suffer and die and be our substitute. And once again, our sins would be forgiven and forgotten, this time, finally, and forever. The concept of needing to be saved from our sin Is foreign to many people. They resist that idea that they need saving. They choose to believe that they are basically good. So it becomes a challenge to explain the gospel. And you might go about it by starting with what the greatest problem is in the universe. And that is that we have all failed to trust God and to obey God and to live in a way that treats him as the supreme treasure in the whole universe and we all know that don't we we have failed we have dishonored god we've been, essentially we've committed treason against our creator and god's justice and holiness demands that we be appropriately punished specifically we need to be saved from the wrath of god that burns against all ungodliness and unrighteousness we see this in Romans 1 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So our biggest problem here is the wrath of God. We need to be saved from God. But God is not only Holy and just, he is also gracious and patient and loving. Therefore, he planned a way to solve this biggest problem in the universe. And the solution that he designed was that God sent Jesus into the world to become a substitute for everyone who would believe in him. The death of Jesus on the cross satisfied the wrath of God, which would burn against us. If we were not covered by the sacrifice of Christ, he covers us with his blood, like a shield, like asbestos going through a fire. And how does Jesus do this? We're going to turn now to Romans three, verses 21 through 26, and we're going to zero in on verse 25, where various translations use different words for the same Greek word. Let's read this together but now the righteousness of god has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of god through faith in jesus christ for all who believe for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god and we are justified by his grace as a gift So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we're going to look at this word propitiation. That's a long, big word. So let's look at the way it's translated in other um, translations. So in the ESV and the New King James Version, we have propitiation. We just saw that. And in the Revised Standard Version, it says whom God put forward as an expiation by His blood to be received by faith. And then the NIV says God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement or an atoning sacrifice through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. Now, these are two theologically rich gospel salvation words, propitiation and expiation. But we don't use these words very much in conversation these days. Um, But since they're in the Bible, we should really talk about what they mean. So here's a couple definitions to help us. Expiation, uh, the prefix ex means out of or from. So expiation has to do with taking something away. So in the Bible, it has to do with taking away guilt through the payment of a penalty or the offering of an atonement. Propitiation, the prefix pro means for, and has to do with the object of the expiation. So propitiation brings about a change, you might say, in in God's attitude with our relationship, so that he moves from being against us to being for us. So, we are restored into a right relationship with God. So, think vertically here. Here's how R.C. Sproul explains the difference. He said, Expiation is the act that results in the change of God's disposition toward us, it's what Christ did on the cross. And the result of Christ's work of expiation is propitiation. God's anger is turned away. The distinction is the same as that between the ransom that is paid and the attitude of the one who receives the ransom. Jesus did both at the cross to satisfy the wrath of God. He, as a scapegoat, had all of our sins transferred to him. He became sin who knew no sin. He suffered outside the camp for us. Removing our sin as far as the East is from the West. Now, back in Genesis, we saw this concept of a curse. The snake was cursed, the ground was cursed, even childbirth was cursed with pain. And you might remember that the people of God often had choices put before them obey God and be blessed, or not. If you don't obey, those curses will come. So throughout the Old Testament, the prophets proclaimed both blessing and woes or curses. And then in Galatians 3, 13 and 14, we read, Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. Jesus took not only the penalty for our sins, but he became the curse. He became that curse for us. Either we bear the curse of God ourselves, or we run to Jesus who took it for us. First Thessalonians 1:10 says, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Ultimately, Jesus died to save us from the wrath of God. Our only hope of escape from God's burning wrath is to be covered by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. This is the heart of the Gospel, that as people who are covered by the atoning blood of Jesus, we are redeemed or saved from the worst danger we might ever face no wrath for those whose sins have been paid. There's no double jeopardy. We don't die eternally if we trust that Jesus has died instead of us. That is what salvation is all about. Al Mohler put it this way, the sum and substance of the gospel is that a holy and righteous God who must demand a full penalty for our sin both demands the penalty and provides the penalty. His own self-substitution is Jesus Christ the Son, whose perfect obedience and perfectly accomplished atonement purchased all that is necessary for our salvation. Jesus Christ Met the full demands of the righteousness and justice of God against our sin. We either believe that or we do not. As we close, I'd like to just make a note of one more Old Testament connection. We've learned that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, and that the blood of bulls and goats were not sufficient. In Exodus 25 and Leviticus 16, the Lord gave instructions for the Ark of the Covenant. There was to be a solid gold, gold lid or a cover where the blood of the atoning sacrifice was sprinkled. And it was at this very place that God would meet the high priest. Exodus 25:22 declares, There I will meet with you. This place was called the mercy seat where sin was atoned for by the sacrifice of a substitute. The high priest sprinkled the seat seven times on the Day of Atonement, symbolically reconciling the Lord and his chosen people. Now I'd like to look back at Romans 3.25 again. The NET translation says, God publicly displayed him at his death as the mercy seat. Accessible through faith. This was also to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who lives because of Jesus' faithfulness. Isn't that beautiful? The greatest news is that Jesus, through his sacrifice in the shedding of his blood, has become the mercy seat. For us, Jesus satisfies the wrath and the justice of the Father. The greatest news in all the world is that Jesus, our Messiah, is everything we need and more. He is our Passover lamb, He is our substitute, He is our sacrificed goat, the scapegoat, our mercy seat, our temple, and as we'll see in lesson 10, He is our great high priest and the King of kings and Lord of lords. As I close, I just want to remind you that at the beginning of the semester, we handed out copies of Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ by John Piper. And these chapters uh, in the middle of this book are just incredible for helping you grow in your affection for Jesus as we approach Palm Sunday, Good Friday, easter and i'd like to just read for you a section from page 71 of that book this is john piper and then i will close in a prayer that he wrote he writes a prayer at the end of each chapter the suffering and weakness of jesus were a work of his sovereign power no one takes my life from me but i lay it down of my own accord He freely chose to join the Father's design for his own suffering and death. And what was that design? To be a substitute for us so that we might live. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. He humbled himself. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the goal of it all? greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Yes, but to what end? What does love pursue? Two great purposes were accomplished in the suffering of Christ, which are really one purpose. First, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The suffering of Jesus brought us to God who is fullness of joy and pleasure evermore second in the very hour of death the father and the son were glorified now is the son of man glorified and god is glorified in him john thirteen thirty one. our joy in savoring god and his glory in saving us our those things are one that is the glory Of Christ's incomparable sufferings. Would you pray with me? Father, what can we say? We feel utterly unworthy in the face of Christ's unspeakable sufferings. We are sorry. It was our sin that brought this to pass. It was we who struck him and spit on him. And mocked him. Oh, Father, we are so sorry. We bow ourselves to the dirt and shut the mouths of our small, dark, petty, sinful souls. Oh, Father, touch us with fresh faith that we might believe the incredible. The very pain of Christ that makes us despair is our. Salvation, open our fearful hearts to receive the gospel, waken dead parts of our hearts that cannot feel what must be felt. That we are loved with the deepest, strongest, purest love in the universe. Oh, grant us to have the power to comprehend with all the saints the height and depth and length and breadth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and may we be filled with all the fullness of God. Fight for us, O God, that we not drift, numb and blind and foolish, into vain and empty excitements. Life is too short, too precious, too painful to waste on worldly bubbles that burst Heaven is too great. Hell is too horrible. Eternity is too long that we should putter around on the porch of eternity. Oh God, open our eyes to the vastness of the sufferings of Christ and what they mean for sin and holiness and hope and heaven. We fear our bent to trifling. Make us awake to the weight of glory, the glory of Christ's incomparable sufferings. In his great and wonderful name we pray. Amen.